Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I believe mentoring is an important skill to develop and you're never too old to have a mentor. And the research supports this. Over 30 years, researchers have confirmed mentoring is important for accelerated career growth. My next guest was named Mentor of the Year in the Victorian Legal Awards Institute of Victoria. Liberty Sanger is a principal at Morris Blackburn and is also at the forefront of helping to keep women safe in their workplace. Among a number of roles, Liberty is the chair of Victoria's Equal Workplaces Advisory Council, and in 2021, she was recognised with an Order of Australia. Liberty, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. You've had a brilliant legal career and contributed in so many areas. So firstly, thank you for all the work that you do. I want to talk a little about mentoring and also the work you're doing around sexual harassment in the workplace. But first, can you articulate for me what are the skills that you have that finds you so in demand for advisory boards and the like? It's a great question. It's um, it's one that is always difficult to answer when you're the person who's asked rather than the person who's doing the asking. But I think what I would say is it's, firstly, it's my passion for the work I do. And I've been very vocal about issues around diversity and inclusion in particular and equality. But I'm also very well known for being able to build consensus and uh, achieve practical outcomes. And I'm very big on the the last part, actually. I have been in many a conversation that has been very cathartic about things that are not right with the world, but it is much more challenging to come up with agreement amongst a group of people who come at it from different perspectives and build a to-do list of things that are capable of being delivered by that group, by government, by whichever body is taking charge of it. And I do really pride myself on extending myself to make sure that whatever group I'm involved in or have the uh, privilege of being asked to lead, that's what I strive to achieve. I don't have any time for, I never have as a leader, uh, making people feel silly or not included or belittling them for their views. I find everyone who comes to the table, particularly around the issues that I've been passionate about, has a really valuable perspective and an important point of view that needs to be heard and needs to find its place within the recommendations that we make. So even if someone is struggling with how to articulate that or themselves has a moment of exasperation and and is uh, you know, finding it hard to make themselves understood. I do work very hard to find the point that they're trying to make and to make sure that that is something that we're all able to respectfully discuss 
and use constructively as we progress. Is that something you've always been good at and therefore it's been partly the secret to your you know, very early career success or is it something that, that you worked out along the way and then developed? I've always been very determined to be constructive and achieve results and I think I figured out early on that regrettably I was not the expert in everything and that the the way to achieve change was to work not only with my strengths but to have a whole lot of people around me that had different strengths so that we could together nut out the problem and come up with solutions. I would say that I have been given a lot of opportunities. I've sought a lot of opportunities um, and I've been the beneficiary of a lot of informal mentoring throughout my time, which has meant that I've been in situations where I've had to practice that skill. And so from a very early age, well, I guess I'm talking about my my mid-teens onwards, I have sought out and found myself in positions where I've been chairing something or running something or trying to influence a group and having to think about how I bring my group of people or the group's point of view to the table. And the, the reason why I ask that is because personally, I, I kind of battle that almost daily as someone running a business that sits in the gender equality space. And if you don't take a strong position on one issue that a, a very passionate group feels strongly about, it can be difficult to explain why you're not doing that. I've always approached it a bit in a similar way that I want to hear other people's views, respect other people's views, respect the political process that exists around these issues and try to hold that middle ground, which I think is a difficult place to sit in on any given day. It is. You know, I think if people are aware that you are approaching the issue, in this case gender equality, with a really good and fair set of values, that does get you a long way. And I think you've got to really demonstrate that with your leadership. The thing about life is that you never stop learning. And I think even for me, as I said before, I had to learn pretty early on. I was not expert at everything. Even for me, I've had plenty of moments within the diversity and inclusion area where I have had to face up to the fact that where I was is not the right place to be. And I've jumped into that learning because it extends me. It makes me a better leader. I can give you an example of that uh, that I often cite. And I think it's also a good example of how Mentoring is not a one-way street. With a a terrific principal we have here at Morris Blackburn, who was then an emerging leader herself, Asmina Hussain, boldly marched up to my office with Tim Soupomasan's report of now some time ago about, I think it's Blueprint for Change or Leading for Change. But essentially the thesis of this was you don't need to only do gender equality in your workplace. You can proceed with all attributes around diversity and inclusion at the same time. But a lot of organisations were falling into the trap of thinking you had to sequence it. And I have to say I was because I was thinking there is a path forward with how to proceed with the gender equality strategy inside my organisation and others. And it makes sense to me. And I've read a number of pieces of literature about this. And I thought, you know, I've got that way forward and we will get to every other attribute, but we'll start with gender equality. 
And so and she marches and gives me this, says, read this. And I read it and I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I you just felt... I felt terrible. And tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I felt energised, actually. I thought, Did you? Yeah. I thought, she's right. She's right. And from that moment forward, I have been absolutely dogged. And it was really, you know, I was hearing and learning at that time really about what it meant to approach public policy with an intersectional lens. And from that moment, that's how I've approached uh, my diversity and inclusion work. Can we talk about mentoring? You actually were named Mentor of the Year in in 2018, am I right? You were Mentor of the Year? Yeah, that's right. Tell me what that award actually is, because I haven't heard of that award before, and why um, and what you did and how you got it and what, what you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, I always try in these conversations to not say, you know, all the gendered things about being embarrassed and humble, yep, et cetera. Yep. So I'll try and avoid that. But all of those things were true, just so that mm-hmm. you and the listeners know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, There's an annual series of awards that are uh, held by the Law Institute of Victoria, and people are nominated for those. And I came to learn that some of the people that I've mentored had nominated me for this award. And I guess it was a moment of reflection. I've been the beneficiary myself of a great deal of informal mentoring and sponsorship, I should say. And in turn, I've always thought it was my job to help others and extend those same opportunities to others. I have always had a particular eye for helping women because I see over and over again learned behaviours around not putting yourself forward, thinking you're not quite ready, don't have enough experience, particularly when it comes to putting your hand up for speaking opportunities, putting your hand up to take the lead on a particular project. I see women more likely to wait to be asked rather than actually volunteering. And so I'm very big on both sponsoring, pulling them up and then pushing them behind the scenes. Uh, But it's not exclusively young women that I've mentored. It's definitely also young men. And there is, you know, a slight difference in approach. But mostly it's been, in fact, it's exclusively been about making sure that they can see their potential and they can realise their potential. And I think one of the really valuable things about mentoring is that, or if you've got a good mentor, is that really what they do is they give you a safe place to have a conversation about who they are and where they think they might want to go, they need to be able to ask the questions without feeling as though they're going to be judged or it's in some way going to disadvantage them or their career. And they're genuinely curious about what if I tried this or what if I tried that or this isn't working or I'm struggling with that. Giving them a way to, to ask the questions and share some insights as well as helping them see and realise their own potential, I think are really key attributes of a mentor. What, if any, resources or approaches do you take in a mentoring session? Quite informal, I have to say. I really like face-to-face, which is a strange thing to say, but in this new modern world, I think you do need to take the time to have some engagements face-to-face. I've taken on a, a new mentee recently who very respectfully asked the question of how I like to work and and gave me the option really of doing it all via the screen and subject to health advice, (laughs) I I take that on board. But I I do think that there is something 
in building the relationship face-to-face. And that thing I talked about before about really listening to someone, I think you can best do face-to-face and I try and take that into an informal place, so over a coffee. And asking open-ended questions, it's really important that the person that you're engaging with does most of the talking. The thing I struggle with, actually, is not jumping in and trying to solve their problems. It's so hard. (laughs) But you need to be quite respectful of that. If I'm mentoring someone within my workplace, I've got particularly a lot of views about either how they're being supervised or what they might do to increase their visibility or obtain an opportunity, progress with a promotion, et cetera. If it's outside of my workplace, I need to be really cautious about that because you just don't know what their operating environment is. And you've got to be really mindful of the fact that anything you say could have a lot of influence over what they do next. So um, being really respectful about that role and, and making sure that you're helping them arrive at the conclusion that they need to arrive at with guidance, but that you're not trying to solve the problem for them. Do you see common problems? Yes, I do, particularly amongst young women. You know, the biggest problem is poor quality leadership. It's such a difficult thing to help amazing young women see and realise their potential when they're working with a leader that just isn't interested in giving opportunities to their people. And that's that's why I say it's often very hard to not jump in and say, you know what, you could always resign and go and find a better leader. Although at the moment, I would say there is a real a war for talent. So anyone listening to this shouldn't be afraid about exerting their, their muscle a little more in that regard. But, you know, it, it sometimes makes me despair about the quality of, of leadership inside organisations. You know, leaders not making time to talk to their people, not being respectful of work-life balance, not being conscious of what opportunities they are giving to a person and what opportunities they are not giving to a person. So particularly hear about that from young women where they perceive that the better opportunities are going to the men in their area rather than to them. And how do you as a young woman, perhaps in a male-dominated environment, go and have that type of conversation with your boss? That's asking a lot of an emerging leader to lead the cultural change that is built on centuries of bias, but you need to find a practical way through. As I said at the outset, I do pride myself on trying to come up with practical solutions. So without problem solving, you need to help equip them with some practical skills about how they might have that conversation. And even things as, as seemingly insignificant to the leader, but very important to the person that you're mentoring is how they're spoken to in a meeting as compared to others. And, you know, you just... Well, I hear in what is said to me the way I felt at various times as I was emerging as a leader, and I'm sure with very inconsequential exchanges on the part of the person having the conversation with me in front of others, but how that made me feel. And so when you are uh, giving advice as a mentor, you, you need to both remember that and also find a way to make sure that that person knows that they are an amazing person and, you know, they ought not let the crappy leader make them feel any less valuable. Getting on with 
what they wanted to achieve, being very clear on their goals. And if their goals and their values are not capable of being met and realised in that organisation, then I think the organisation needs to have a good hard look at itself. This is a bit of a, a strange segue, but it's something that has come up all week for me. And that is the concept that, well, the shorthand version is poor men. They're feeling disgruntled, left out, discombobulated. If you're mentoring primarily women, I imagine, but you're also mentoring men, are you seeing any kind of sense in the workplace that there is genuine cause for men to feel a bit out of sorts? And the short answer is no. I think the really interesting thing about that narrative is that it's it's often geared towards one style of male leadership. And this is one of the other insights I've had through the diversity and inclusion work I've had the privilege of being involved in is that it actually doesn't suit a lot of men. There's a lot of men who are just greatly relieved that we are all jumping into this conversation and we are trying to make workplaces in particular inclusive for everybody because that old school style of, I'll call it alpha male leadership, but, you know, sometimes it gets described not in a leadership context, but we hear about toxic masculinity. That style doesn't suit a lot of men. I also think it's a little bit generational. I don't want to overstate that, but the things I have described to you typically come from men who are older than me. I've grown up with a whole lot of men that don't regard that as the way to lead and don't regard that as the way to behave. Nonetheless, there are imperfections with that. And I think a, a, you know, a massive challenge for us all to really get on top of is who does the caring. Uh, and so what that means about who takes the secondary role in a number of relationships when the couple has a child. You know, I, I describe for myself um, sort of three moments, three pivotal moments of learning about gender inequality being a thing. And one of them was, was definitely when all my friends started having their babies in their early 30s. And you know, I just suddenly found that I was the last woman standing in a lot of leadership forums because my women friends were either not returning to work or returning to work part-time. And they certainly didn't feel like they could ask for promotion while they were taking time out of the workforce or taking on lesser responsibilities to care for children. And, you know, just from a systems point of view, you think, isn't this interesting that, you know, it's always the woman that subs out, always the woman. And so between my 30s and 40s, I increasingly found myself often the youngest and the only woman in a number of forums. And I'm not at all concerned about saying it wasn't my choice that I had my kids in my 40s. It was just the way things turned out. But it just meant that I saw and heard a lot of stuff that I wouldn't otherwise have seen and heard. And we are nowhere near on top of that. We still see a massive adjustment to women's work, earnings, career potential happen at the time that they have children. And for many of them, they never make that up. And, you know, that goes right through to their savings in retirement. And we are seeing increasing 
women at the end of life have insufficient savings in retirement and facing homelessness and other terrible consequences. So getting on top of that, I think, is a really big and important challenge for all of us. And that both goes to who does the caring, it goes to access to childcare, it goes to the respect and the the wages of our early childhood educators. So there's a lot in that. But, you know, once again, every piece of evidence shows, every international study, every international example we can call upon shows that you not only have happier, healthier people working for you when you get on top of that, but guess what? All these businesses out there make more money. You retain the skills. You uh, have a much larger number of people to call on to fill the roles. I referred to earlier, there's a war for talent going on right now. Employers who can get this right will find themselves at the top of the pile when it comes to being employers of choice. Your legal speciality is workplace injury, which includes workplace sexual assault. How's that changed over time? Uh, Well, we're seeing a shift at the moment, um, two shifts. One, we're seeing the courts take it very, very seriously. So the amounts of money that courts used to award if a victim survivor managed to get through all of the hoops that took them to an award of compensation at court, and there is a lot that they would have to be prepared to go through to get to that point. They used to be very inadequate. We've seen a step change and we've seen much larger amounts being handed out, which goes to the seriousness with which the courts are taking the issue now. We've also seen a shift in whether the victim survivor will be believed. I don't want to overstate that, but I think that the stigma about making the claim is reducing We have a long, long way to go. I think many of your listeners would either know of experiences themselves or have friends who to this day would be reluctant to make a complaint for fear of what it might do to their own career prospects, either within an organisation or with their next job. We've got to get beyond that because the stigma shouldn't rest with the person who is the, the victim of the harassment. It should absolutely sit with the perpetrator And I would also say the duty holder, who is the employer, because it's up to the employer to make sure that they are doing all they can to provide a safe workplace, which includes making sure that the culture in the workplace is safe. And if they're not taking those steps, and there are very practical steps that they can take to make sure that that's happening, then they too ought to be on the hook for that. I'll reference Champions of Change here. I think that they too have done some terrific work in both taking on Kate Jenkins' recommendations and figuring out how to make them into executable policy recommendations for organisations. So I'm particularly thinking about the work that they have done, uh, work that I've also had the benefit of leading with the Victorian government around using occupational health and safety laws as a framework to risk manage and prevent workplace sexual harassment. They've done a a power of work on that, as has the AICD, reminding directors of their duties to provide a safe place of work. You know, sexual harassment should be on your risk register. You should be getting regular updates about what you're doing in your organisation. Are you doing training? What kind of policies have you got around, I'll, I'll call it casual comments and jokes, but, you know, 
We know that they are not casual comments and jokes. Even looking at what sort of events you sponsor, you know, are Friday night drinks still a thing and what goes on at Friday night drinks, that's still your responsibility. What sort of behaviours are you rewarding? Looking at the composition of your workforce and making sure that you do have diversity at every level, that will go to things like who's on your selection panels, how you recruit, being mindful, picking up on something else that Champions of Change have also um, sponsored, being mindful of of when you are speaking on panels, you know, are those panels gender diverse? And I would say diverse and pushing back if they're not. All of these leadership behaviours are within your control as an organisation. And these are the standards that you can set in an organisation. And so, you know, being really conscious of that and not having one set of policies, but then another set of behaviours in your organisation is just so critical. Can I take you one step back then? If I am in an organisation and I feel like I have been a victim of harassment, inappropriate behaviour, poor culture, how do you assess the likelihood that I'm going to be taken seriously more broadly and not come out of it with my career in the toilet? Well, get advice if you're worried. So you might be a member of a union. They're an excellent place to go for advice and they'll be able to help guide you through. If not, seek independent advice. I'm not trying to plug Morris Blackburn, but go to a law firm that is recognised for being expert in workplace sexual harassment and they will help tell you what the law is as well as how you might proceed. I would like to say go to HR and have that conversation. I guess what I would say on that is I'm not in a position to say that as a universal rule. Virginia Trioli actually in her recent update to her book Generation F once again nominates HR as often being cited as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I have no interest in slandering HR experts. I think that they go into that role genuinely to help people. So the pivot for everyone in HR needs to be how do you exercise independence in that role? You're employed by the company. There's a whole lot of things that traditionally have gone with how to handle a complaint inside the organisation between two people that actually we need to chuck out and start again with. I think if if HR doesn't think they can be genuinely independent, they need to have another organisation that they would ask to step in at that point to undertake either an investigation or to help support the person. And then the next thing I would ask organisations to do is it ought to be if there has been an injury, so if if a person is suffering from stress, it ought to be recorded as a workplace injury. There is an injury register and if they need time off work, if they need medical treatment, work cover claims ought to be put in. You will increasingly be able to contact your local work safe agency and they'll be able to provide you with assistance and your state or territory equal opportunity agency can also provide assistance. So there's a lot of places you can go for help. I don't feel like I'm at a place where I can say yet that you should feel confidence that your organisation is going to handle this appropriately, but you should feel very confident that momentum has shifted, that 
the tolerance of organisations getting this wrong has significantly reduced and there's a lot of supports in place, a lot of places you can go for help. No one should stay silent and suffer alone. The consequences of workplace sexual harassment can be dire. I have seen women who have been left unable to ever work again or unable to work in in the profession that they had trained for or the job that they had secured because of workplace sexual harassment. And it is no less serious a workplace injury than a physical injury of an equivalent cause of disability. You know, I've seen plenty of traumatic workplace injuries that have led to permanent physical disabilities. And while completely tragic, no one in the sort of the workplace injury ecosystem gets emotional about, is WorkSafe going to be called in? Is there going to be an investigation? What's going to happen to that machine? You just don't have those same kinds of conversations. Everyone knows what happens next. And that's where we need to get the discussion about workplace sexual harassment because, as I said before, the stigma must not rest with the victim. For goodness sakes, it's the person who's been injured. It's got to sit with the person who had the responsibility not to injure, and that's both the perpetrator and the employer. My last question to you is if you can put your crystal ball, plug it in and look into it, you've been in this space for a long time. You're at the forefront of change in this space. What do you see for the 10-year-old girl who's in the workplace in 20 years' time. Is there going to be, I guess, the situation where there's no risk that it's her career that is ruined? That Can we get to a safe place with this issue? Look, I'm, a, I'm an optimist and I'm hopeful. I think that the task force I've just led in Victoria regarding workplace sexual harassment has given me great hope. Every task force or inquiry that I've been involved in, I have been so heartened by the determination of all participants to get change. There's always a little bit of discussion about the best way through, whether it's, you know, more laws or, you know, we need less red tape, but we need um, more practical skills. But everyone wants to see change. I do think that where the conversation is going now around using OHS as a means to prevent workplace sexual harassment and also to take it away from any one person having to lead cultural change inside an organisation and instead making it a systems approach, so a structural approach to a structural issue, I think that is going to get a lot of change. We saw Kate Jenkins in her Respect at Work report call for OHS to be used more. We've seen the Victorian government bring that to life. We know that WorkSafe Victoria is going to do more with that. I'm very hopeful about where the other state WorkSafe regulatory bodies are going to take it. I'm very hopeful about where the federal government is going to lead us with what the equality norms are. They are going to sponsor a big change around strategy, which will permeate through our workplaces around the standards. So I am hopeful. I mean, you think about things, this is a very perhaps might seem like a strange analogy, but you can think about times when wearing a seatbelt or wearing a bike helmet were not regarded as the things we would do. But you move forward to where we're at now and you don't think about putting on your seatbelt, you don't think about putting on a bike helmet. 
this is where we need to get how we treat each other in a workplace and what the standards are in a workplace. It's more difficult in that the settings are so deeply entrenched in our culture and we're trying to do more than impact only workplace culture. It's going to be everything that we do, but it is very possible and it's very doable and there is so much goodwill. It will continue to take action and campaigning on the part of everybody. I mean, I think we've seen some extraordinary acts of heroism from some of our young women on the need for a change and I'm in awe of them and I think it's been said before, I'm, I'm, I'm plagiarising the comments of, of others, but, um, you know, I look at, at what some of these young women, the Grace Thames and the Brittany Higgins and the like, are saying and doing and I'm just so impressed with them and wonder whether I would have had that same courage at their age. You know, you see that same tenacity and determination from our next generation of, of leaders that I'm very hopeful that we'll get that change. Liberty Sanger, thank you so much for joining us and for those excellent insights into the future. I began by thanking you for the work you do in this space and I'd just like to reiterate that. The country needs people like you spending vast amounts of their time and career thinking through these problems to get to a better outcome. So thank you very much. Thanks, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.